Rocket Mortgage introduced, introduced a commercial early this year during the Super Bowl. Different iterations of it are still playing these days. Maybe you've seen them. In the ads, actor Tracy Morgan is pointing out in a humorous way the difference between being pretty sure of something and certain of something. He says, I'm pretty sure these mushrooms aren't poisonous. As someone in the background who's just eaten one falls to the ground. I'm pretty sure these are parachutes as he pushes a man wearing a child's backpack out of a plane while another passenger says, mine has a sandwich. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you do not run as a huge bear confronts a band of hikers and Morgan in the back of the group turns and runs away. I'm pretty sure these hornets are not the murdering type. He says in his beekeeper suit as he swats the nest and it falls over the head of the man standing under it. The commercials are about the ease with which one can be approved for a loan. And it wraps up with a tagline for the mortgage company that sponsors it, certain is better. I suppose certainty is important when one is wondering about qualifying for a mortgage to purchase a home. How much more important is certainty when it comes to one's eternal home? On that matter, certainty is not simply better. Certain is best. Let's pray. Father, our desire in coming here is to declare your worth in our lives and to open our hearts and minds to receive your truth. You have the words of life that we need, and we pray that they would be spoken in these moments ahead. Help us to hear you. Help us to gather and receive the implications of, of your words to us and let them do the work that you want them to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we just finished reading together through the New Testament and um, probably within a week or so we'll publish another reading plan and we plan to spend probably at least eight weeks or so in the Psalms this summer, spring and summer. So the, a new plan is coming forth and also a new sermon series beginning next Sunday, not in conjunction with a plan like this one was, but a new sermon series on the biblical home. What, is, what does a home look like when the people who live there are surrendered to Jesus and following his will? What does it look like to be a biblical person, a biblical husband, a biblical wife, a biblical friend, a biblical kid? So anyway, you get the sense there. So we're just finished up our New Testament reading plan, and in our reading was the short epistle of Second Peter. It's a small book, three chapters in total. Uh, hopefully you read it. If not, I encourage you to read it soon. Uh, a provocative little letter, it, and it is provocative because that was its intent. Peter tells us that in verse 13 of chapter 1, that he wants to stir up the reader. But it is not his aim to agitate the reader. He's not trying to incite us. He wants to awaken. The connotation of that word that's translated stir up is that of arousing from sleep. So it is to raise. And the intent here is kind. Peter wants to shake his readers into a consciousness to make sure they don't miss out, make sure they don't sleep through something very important. 
like the Apostle Paul's message to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this little letter is also a parting missive. Um, Peter tells us in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Why, Peter, are you trying to stir us up? Because I know that I'm going to be leaving the earth very soon. And I want you to be able to have it clear in your head to bring these things to mind when and as you need them. Maybe you've heard the acronym for the Bible described as basic instructions before leaving earth. Here are Peter's basic instructions before he leaves earth. He writes about several important truths and eventualities which he wants us to be more than pretty sure of. He wants us to be certain that these things will come to pass. He wants us to be certain of our calling and our election. He wants to be certain, us to be certain that false teachers are going to soon present themselves to the church. He wants us to be certain of the inevitability of God's judgment on everyone, righteous and unrighteous alike, non-believer, believer alike. He wants us to know that the world is going to come to an end, that Jesus is going to come back. He wants us to know that there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth where righteousness dwells. For our purposes this morning, we're going to spend the lion's share of our time on the first of Peter's reminders, though, his call to certainty in the matter of one's calling and election. Chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, in this letter, Peter is assuming that his readers are Christians. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he's clear that they have obtained a faith that's just like his. In verse 10, that we just read, he, he refers to them as brothers. In verse 12, he says they're established in the truth. By outward appearances, as far as he knows, his audience is made up of professing Christians, and yet this is not a claim to be made lightly or just taken for granted that it is so. Because while there is and there ought to be comfort in the assurance of our salvation, Peter wants all who make such a claim to be properly confident in it. Be diligent, in fact, he says. Be diligent in this matter. The word translated diligent is from a root word that means to use speed. And so the plain meaning is to hasten, to be eager, to take care of this. We would say in a common vernacular, Peter saying, get after it. This is something I want you to get after. This is not something I want you to let lie. This is not something that you should be ambivalent about. This is, not, this is not something that you should kick down the road. You want to deal with this, and you want to deal with this now and be sure of it, because it is a matter of high importance. It is a matter of eternal significance. Both of the terms that Peter uses in verse 10, calling and election, refer to one's status as a child of God. So on the one hand, such a calling is very personal, and he says so, right? He calls it your calling. Confirm your calling. And on the other hand, it is God's. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The idea of God calling people to himself, you know, if you've read the Bible, is throughout Scripture. It runs through the Old Testament into the New Testament. Peter uses the term four times in his first epistle. He uses it again here. The Apostle Paul's letters are filled with the idea of calling. Perhaps one of the more often quoted passages is Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. God calls and we answer. That's the pattern of God's calling in the Bible. Left to our own, we would never find God. Left to our own, we would not want to find God. And apart from God, the Bible describes our condition as being dead in our trespasses and sins. But by his mercy, through his spirit, he quickens us that we might come to know him, that we might be able to hear salvation's message. God makes the first move. And so Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. This is true. This is how God works in us. And because this is true, none of us then has a reason to boast that we have found God. Sometimes you hear that saying, that expression, and we know what people mean, and we don't want to to rain on anyone's parade, but I found God, and you kind of maybe sitting there theologically astute saying, well, actually, he found you. (laughs) That's how it works. That's the way it is, but that's okay. We get where you're coming from. You've actually just figured out that God found you, and now you've got the lifetime to, to get the rest of it down, okay? For by grace you have been saved, we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Through faith, and this is not your own. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No boasting in being found, other than boasting in the one who found you. There's no glory in being lost, only glory in being found. And who is it that came and found us but God? So no boasting on our parts, but all glory to God. Back to Peter, who says, as Christians, we must be diligent to make the truth of our calling and election steadfast. We must make it firm in our lives. We've got to confirm it. Now, that's an imperative in Scripture. That's a command. Whenever we come across a command in the Bible, we have to begin to ask ourselves, what does obedience look like? How do I follow it? How do I live this thing out? And Peter tells us, I believe, that we confirm the call of God on our lives that we confirm the saving presence of God in our lives by evaluating our conduct, by looking at the fruit of our lives. We confirm our status as children of God by evaluating the presence, or perhaps we would hope not, but it is possible, the absence of godly qualities. There should be, in Christians, born again, adopted, created by God, some resemblance of God, family resemblance of God in our lives. If we truly are partakers of the divine nature, if we really have escaped the corruption of this world that is fueled by our sinful desires, then we will most definitely be about the business of growing in grace. That's what Peter's talking about in verses 5 through 7. We start with faith. And from our faith we supplement or we add virtue, which is a moral character. And and to that, we add knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and then to self-control, patience, long-suffering, and then to patience, godliness, and then to godliness, brotherly kindness, and then to brotherly kindness, we add love. The picture here is of an upward spiral, a movement toward what is good and what is noble and what is pleasing to God. 
In a word we call this transformation, you've probably heard that talked about quite a bit. This is what Christianity is about, it's our transformation. What Romans 8 calls it is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. So we could also understand it that simply, that God in his mercy is, a, is about making us look more like Jesus. The norm for a child of God is holiness in increasing measure. That's what it's supposed to look like. And that's what Peter's getting at. And that's what, that, that's what those characteristics and attributes are. It's holiness in increasing measure, the highest ethic being love. Now that is not to imply that the journey to holiness and in holiness is going to be a steady ascent. I think we make a mistake in our lives when we think, okay, I begin here and I've, I've received Christ as my Savior, so from now on it's just going to be a steady ascent right to the good stuff. But the reality is we remain imperfect people and we have the flesh and the old fights against the new and sometimes there are, are struggles. And so it doesn't just look like that as much as sometimes it looks a little more like this. We are all imperfect. We all have the natures battling in us. And at the same time, we should expect, one, that Christians will, in fact, live like Christians, exhibiting and growing in the attributes of God, and two, there will be progress made in the Christian journey. The lives of God's children will be marked by the qualities in increasing measure over time that Peter lists. The norm for a child of God is holiness in increasing measure. And Peter, by establishing a norm, gives us something to measure our lives against. And if you haven't been reading along with us through the New Testament, I certainly want to encourage you to take some time today or later in the week and go back to this scripture and look at these things that Peter's talking about as evidence of our salvation. But also, he says, if you, if you continue in these things and you persist in these, you'll never fall. So these, these are things to take hold of and to cultivate in our lives. Now, I want to pause here for a second and address a question that might be brewing in your minds, especially if you've been taught well over the years about the idea of salvation by grace. You may be wondering, Pastor, are you or is the Apostle Peter advocating a salvation by works? Because it could kind of sound that way, that you're saying, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do that, and you can expect this and you can expect that. Is this a salvation by works? And the short answer is not at all. The answer the Apostle Paul would give is, may it never be. We're not talking about salvation by work. Salvation is always by grace, by God's grace. Verses 5 through 7 do not describe attitudes and behaviors that one adopts in order to be saved. These are attitudes and behaviors that develop when one is saved. This is not something that you do that make yourself presentable to God. It is something that God does when you finally present yourself to him. And, and I said in a, in a previous service, I think one of the things that keeps us sometimes from, from actually ha entering the relationship with God that is vibrant and meaningful and joyful is that we feel like we've got to get ourselves all in order before we can go to, to the throne room. We've got to clean ourselves up. And the Lord really is saying, no, you come as you are, and then I will do what I do in you. So, that's so kindly and gently saying, you get out of the way and let me be God. And that's, that's the invitation, right? And that's what this is about. It's not about a salvation by works. It's the idea that when God comes to reside in a person, he changes that person. He lives in us, and by his spirit, he changes us. Friends, through the years, there's been a false teaching that has permeated Christianity that I want to call to your attention this morning. It sort of runs counter to what 
Peter is suggesting into this process. It's probably not coincidental that the urgency behind his call for believers to confirm their calling election is inspired by the threat of false teachers. If you read through in chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll see what he's talking about. These false teachers are going to come, and so, so Christians have to be grounded. Christians have to be anchored in the gospel. You've got to know the truth so that you won't be swayed by the error that is, that is on your way. That's what Peter was about, and we still have to be that way today. We still have to know truth so we won't be swayed by error, and I think there's been a false teaching permeated through Christianity for some time now, and it's been quite a while, started back perhaps with the idea of frontier evangelism and whatnot, but this false teaching boils down to the idea that salvation is a one-time event, that what it means to be saved by God is to say the right words in the right order. Great emphasis has been placed on the making of a decision. Evangelists count decisions at their rallies. You may have used this term yourself or heard somebody use it with you. He made a decision for Jesus. She made a decision for Christ. But the problem is Jesus never commissioned his church to go and get decisions. He tells us to go and make disciples. But discipleship certainly does begin with a decision, of course. But as we have already seen, that decision is first God's. That's the call. And then it's ours to respond and it is the beginning, not the end. It's the beginning of the Christian life. It's the beginning of working out salvation, not the end. Remember the indictment Jesus laid on the Pharisees. You'll find it in Matthew 23, verses 13 to 15. He said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither... Enter yourselves, nor allow... That just gets me. Shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woo! Who is anyone to do that? For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So preachers and teachers who take this weighty matter of eternal salvation and, and boil it down to the repetition of a sinner's prayer or an act like raising a hand or walking an aisle or even being baptized, all of which can be very important, by the way, in, in the beginning of our Christian journey, but do not constitute salvation or the Christian journey. A, pa a pastor or a teacher who says, all you got to do is say this. Just say this, just repeat after me, and we'll call it good. But isn't teaching and insisting on a life of devotion to God as necessary evidence to the reality of the decision or, or, or the commitment that has been made is doing just what the Pharisees were doing. Pointing people in an entirely wrong direction for their deliverance, almost as if salvation through faith was an incantation or a spell giving someone an assurance that they ought not to have. And because they are led to believe that they have salvation, making them twice as much a child of hell. Because they may just go out and replicate what they've been taught about salvation. Or, more likely, they're just going to go out and do nothing at all. And they become impervious to the gospel. Why be saved 
if you think you're already saved? Why be converted if you believe that you've already been converted? So this is how it goes. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And we are saved. Can't argue with that. Comes right out of the Bible. In that moment of belief and faith, we are justified. Christ's atoning work is attributed to us. From there begins a life of holiness. This is what we call being sanctified. If someone claims to be justified and has no interest in being sanctified, that's a problem. The biblical doctrine of progressive sanctification is simply this, that we are steadily, by God's grace and in his mercy, being cleaned up and prepared for use by him. That's what he's doing in us. God saves us in order to change us. So you know how weak that excuse is that we use all the time when we say, that's just how I am. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not how he wants you to be. Well, I can't help it. It's just, just the way I'm wired. <laughs> well, we know a really good electrician. He can, take, <laughs> he can take care of this for you. He can change some circuitry, which is what is needed, right? God saves us to change us. He saves us so that over time, again, by the work of his spirit as we submit to him, that we might become more like him. And that becoming more like him, we would then be truly reflecting his character in our lives in this world. So that individually and as Christians or as a church, we're able to take up the mantle which he gives to us through Christ, which is to display his glory. That's what we're here for, to display the glory of God. And Peter really is talking about this process of growth to display the glory of God. This is what growth in the graces is all about. And this growth is evidence that we have indeed been called according to his purposes. So it's very important when we evaluate our lives that we see us moving in that direction of growth. Now let's notice here too who it is that does the confirming of one's call and election because this could be a, an area that, that can get uncomfortable. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling in in election, as I read it, this duty to make one's calling sure is an individual's responsibility. I cannot be certain of your salvation, and you cannot be certain of mine in any absolute sense. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, right? I believe Peter gives us this list of traits, though, so that I can accurately assess my true standing with God, and you can do the same. I also believe that I can look at your life and say, hey, sister, I see God is at work in you. I see you growing in these graces. I see you changing. I see the Lord at work. I could just as easily look at somebody and say, hey, brother, you know, you say this and you profess that, but I'm watching your life and you're over here doing something altogether different. So that's within bounds in, in life together, right? You can, I can do that for you. You can do that for me. We call this accountability, and we need it. And this is why we're supposed to be together, so that we can grow in community together. So there's a reality that our faith, Christianity, is personal, very personal, but not private. So when folks say, well, what business is it of mine, how I live? The scripture has a lot of answers for that. It's our business because we're in this together. Because the Lord brought us together. And he, he brought us together for the good. For the good. To build one another up to display his glory. Okay? 
We are members of the same body. We have a right to hold one another to account when it comes to conduct. And it isn't just a matter of right. I should be careful when I throw that word around. It isn't just a matter of rights. It's a, it's a matter of duty. We are commanded to do this. We are told to admonish one another, to warn one another, to speak the truth to one another in love. We are told by the writer of Hebrews to make sure, to ensure that no one possesses a heart that is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You cannot do that if you don't live with people. You cannot do that if you don't know people. This is something the Bible tells us to do. Still, the work of confirming one's call and election falls on the shoulder of the individual. That is your business between you and the Lord. This is the command to you. Even when a church is in a place where it has to exercise discipline, and should it get to the final stage of excommunication, we read about this in Matthew 18, even then the church does not have the authority to say, let's say the Protestant church does not claim authority to say a person is or is not saved. If a, if a member persists in sin and that member will not submit to correction and that member has to be removed from membership, even then the church is only saying this, that it, as God's representative, can no longer affirm the profession of faith once made by that member. Think about what membership is. When we bring a person into membership, we are affirming his or her profession of faith in Jesus Christ. This person has said to us, I believe in Jesus and I have faith. That translates to trust. I trust him. I have a desire and a willingness to follow him and to obey his teaching. If they should change their mind, if they should act differently, when we dismiss a member who will not respond to loving correction, we're just retracting that affirmation that we made. We heard you. We believed you. We said it was true. You're proving Willfully that it's not, we're retracting that. Determining, however, the individual's calling and election is not the church's role. It's a matter before that person and the Lord. In fact, if we are following the true spirit of discipline, which is restoration, we desperately want the rebellious person to be among the elect. We, we want that for them. We are not going to sit here in criticism and judgment and just say, oh, you must not have been one of us anyway. No, we want them to be saved. And we want them to find the relief they're looking for in Jesus because they're looking for it somewhere else. And we want them to find meaning in life in Jesus because they've been looking for it somewhere else. It is that simple, right? We don't want them to choose a sinful path. And we don't want that, not because we're trying to tell people what to do, but because they absolutely believe what the Bible says about sin, that it leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man. The end thereof is death. So is it possible to be called of... I think we beat that enough. Is it possible to be called of God, to be a child of God... And to be not growing in the qualities that Peter describes. In other words, you may have heard some of those qualities and thought, Oh my gosh, I, I tripped right over patience. When we got to patience, I fell flat on my face. Right? I'm all right with the faith thing. But once it gets beyond that, it gets a little more difficult. Now, yeah. 
Well, it's meant for you to, to, to hold, hold that list up and, and do that evaluating. Is it possible, though, for you to be a child of God and not growing in these qualities? And so I want to say this, especially if you're a new Christian, don't be discouraged. This is a, a growth process over time. But if you are a Christian who's been a Christian for some time, you can say, well, I don't think I've really grown at all. That could signify a problem, absolutely. And then, of course, we have to recognize that there are a couple of times where growth doesn't, isn't obvious to us. Like, we're growing, but we don't know it. So there's, God is doing something, but we aren't aware of it. Again, a reason to live in community so that somebody else can affirm what the Lord is up to in your life. And then, of course, we should be really honest before God and admit this. Sometimes we don't want to grow. Sometimes the Lord moves us in ways that we resist. And, and he knows what's right and he knows what's best, but we reserve the right at, at, in those moments to be our own sovereign, and we're going to tell him no. So, so it's a complicated matter, isn't it? It really, it really has a lot of variables in here. However, I think the short answer for that question, can I be a child of God and not growing in the qualities that Peter describes, I think the short answer or the safe answer is not for any length of time. Not for any length of time. Growth is the norm. Change is the norm. But here's the problem, and here's the problem we all have. Change is the norm, but so is forgetfulness. Okay? Verse 9. Verse 9, yeah, we're all plagued by this. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having what? Forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's what brings us back to Peter's original intent here, why he wrote it in the first place. You have to stir us up. To say it's possible that you've forgotten, it's possible that you're kind of spiritually asleep, and I want to awaken you, and I want to put it in your mind again, what this Christian life is supposed to look like, and how you can be faithful in it. Believers whose lives do not reflect the qualities Peter says uh, we should see in a person of faith, A, might not be a person of faith. That is a possibility, hence the idea, confirm your calling, right? Make it sure, no, for sure. Or it could be, and it most likely is, that such a person who's not seeing growth in these qualities has forgotten the magnitude of the gift given them in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. A way I think to put that is to say that the cross has become common. Or even grace has become common. Where we might begin to not appreciate it or take it for granted. Such people are not living in response to what Jesus has done on their behalf, but are distracted, spiritually asleep, following their own nearsighted, self-focused goals. It's easy to get to a place like that, though, isn't it? It's so easy. That's why we need to be aroused. That's why we need to be awakened. So Peter writes, not to be critical, not to be judgmental, not to be condemning. Again, I think because we, we sort of have grown up in this, in this fiercely individualistic society that anybody who would even dare question my salvation is out of line. It's not what he's up to, okay? Take it from whence it comes. 
He only wants to awaken any who might have fallen into this slumber where Jesus has become less wonderful, where forgiveness has become less sweet. He just wants to stir us up. And we need to be stirred up and we need to be awake because there are false teachers coming and the judgment of God against unrighteousness is coming and Jesus is coming back and you want to be ready for that. And this world is going to melt down and there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth. He concludes his letter similar to how he began it. Chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what I just said in context, right? The judgment of God, the return of Christ, the new heaven, the new earth, the destruction of this world. You're waiting for all this because that is true. Be diligent. There it is again. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So there's that word, diligent, again. Pointing us in the same direction. Hasten to this. Be eager about this. Uh, don't, don't be lax on this. Be diligent to do what now? To be found by him, the returning king of kings, without spot or blemish and at peace. I read that. And I got hopeless for a second. Because I thought... How am I going to be spotless? I know me. How am I going to be without blemish before a holy God? So I was a little, a little taken back, a little discouraged, and I thought, Peter, what are you telling us to do? Over here I get it. Here's a whole list over here. Is this, a, is this an indication that I can somehow achieve spotlessness or, or being without blemish? I could read that verse. You could read that verse real quickly. You might come away thinking it says something like this. Okay, look, Jesus is coming back. This whole thing is going to come down with fire. You better straighten up and fly right. And you have to try really hard to be presentable when he comes because you don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar of sin. Right? That would, that would be a moralistic way of trying to coerce people into behaving. That is not what this is. In our best efforts, we still come up short, don't we? And in, a, in, in and of ourselves, we can never be completely spotless, can we? And when it comes to sin and the stain it leaves on our soul, we can scrub all we want, but we can't clean it away completely, can we? None of us can absolve ourselves of the guilt of sin. That would puts us in a hopeless spot, doesn't it? And this would be a hopeless message if it weren't for something called the gospel. Peter's language directs us here straight to Christ and to the cross. When he uses that term without spot or blemish, he's pointing us past ourselves to someone else, to another who is perfect and without spot or blemish. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the offering made to God was to involve an animal in whom there could be what? No spot or blemish, right? No blemish, no defect. It has to be perfect. Brothers and sisters, this was a requirement foreshadowing exactly what Jesus was going to be. Peter put it this way in his first epistle. He said, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There is only one way for us to be certain under the gaze of God's inescapable and perfect judgment that we will be found without spot or blemish. And that is by knowing that we have been cleansed by the blood of God's perfect sacrificial lamb, the blood of God's son that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. To be certain, to be found by Jesus in him, without spot or blemish, is to be certain that you have received the free gift of salvation, purchased for you by his blood. So when it comes to matters of eternity, where you will spend it, whether or not you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, there is no reason at all to be pretty sure about such things. I'm pretty sure I'm saved. I'll take my chances with that. Why be pretty sure when you can be certain? The certainty is how, by the way, you can be found by him to be at peace. I am eternally saved by God. He will guard me to the end. I have an inheritance kept in heaven for me. No one will snatch me away from his. I can face anything in peace because I'm in Christ. Give your life to Jesus and be certain. Because in matters of eternity, certain is not just better. Certain is best. Father, we thank you that through your word and through your spirit, we can absolutely be certain of our standing with you. Lord, that you have every desire in the world to make it known to us how we stand with you. And by your grace, through this word, you have given us all the direction that we need and all that we need for godliness and all that we need to affirm and confirm that we belong to you. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Peter. We recognize that if he took his last moments to write something like this, it's very important. Help us, God, then, to take these words to heart and squeeze the most meaning out of them that we can so that we can truly please you and be a delight to you as we make our way on this journey of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.